Hello, and welcome to the Future Farm Pod. My name is Randy, and today we'll be discussing farming and global warming. How do we feed growing populations with dwindling resources? So according to the OECD, agriculture contributes to a significant share of the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change, particularly 17% directly through agricultural activities, and additional 7 to 14% through changes in land use. It's therefore both part of the problem and potentially an important part of the solution. This may sound a bit technical for you to understand. So for us to break it down, we have Joshua Anpansam, who is a youth fellow for the Global Center for Adaptation. He's here with us in the studio. And then we have on board as well, Mr. Atamba, Emmanuel Atamba, founder of Absid Kenya. So I will welcome Joshua first. Welcome Joshua. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great, great, great. Welcome, Emmanuel. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thanks to Connect. And I'm happy to participate in this conversation. Great, great, great. So I'll start with you, Joshua. Global woman and farm. You can broaden the tiger culture. <laughs> so how can we feed a growing population while saving the planet? Um, I think that it's not a simple question. If you might be aware, there is an ongoing uh, drama. Uh, where the World Food Program was uh, sort of asked for $6 billion to solve global hunger, right? And then Elon Musk got, got into this somehow. I know. The question, how are you going to spend $6 billion, right? If you can tell me how you're going to spend $6 billion, I give you that money. Yeah. And if you look at the data and the information provided by the WFP chief so far, you know, it's not, the money itself is not going to eliminate the problem, right? It's going to, of course, um, uh, fix it to a certain extent and, and save some 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 people um and kept the issue significantly but it doesn't fix it so that that really shows how complex the situation is mm -hmm. and i think from my perspective in terms of solving uh world hunger uh would significantly mean that we need to look at issues of um, distribution uh equity around distribution uh we also need to look at it significantly from how much of food is actually wasted right? so i mean um, not to get into any crazy statistics, uh, how much food is wasted is how much food people actually need to survive, right? So if we could then think around how you manage resources, because the, the fundamental question here is that we're depleting resources. Resources per se are not necessarily that depleted to the point where we cannot feed ourselves, right? There is enough to feed ourselves, uh, but it's a question around where is, where is the food and how do we move it to the table of those who really need to eat it? Yes. Uh, so that is important. And secondly, thinking around how do we make sure that there is localization of food systems, said that within every community and within every geography, mm -hmm. there is enough uh, within the context of where they are and what can be produced, uh, taking the majority of the share of what people need. And then of course, uh, equity and distribution um, comes into play. So for me, I think uh, not to broaden the scope too much, but really to focus it on what actions are needed. I think, um, I mean, innovators and practitioners, um, two key things, how do we reduce the wasted and how do we move what is produced to the tables of those who need it in the most sustainable way. Uh, and the context of, of course, uh, food food systems is a, is a solution and I say at the same time is a problem. And that is another thing that we can talk about later because yeah. that also involves a different approach because yes. if you want to produce without necessarily contributing to global warming and greenhouse gas and carbon emissions, we need to change how we produce, 
right? And changing how we produce requires a different uh, new innovations uh, that can allow us to still produce in the quantities that are needed uh, to feed the world, but at the same time also significantly even reducing greenhouse gases. And that is, uh, that is essential. So I'm going to pause it here so um, we can hear also uh, another perspective. And then later on, we can uh, dig into some of the details. Definitely. Imano, what's your take? I, uh, first of all, want to agree, you know, um, with that analysis that first of all, you know, our, our food system is not only a victim, but also a contributor to the problems that we are having in terms of climate change. And it's clear because, I mean, um, if you look at all sectors where everyone is involved, I think someone was saying, you know, how many times do you see a doctor in a month? How many times do you see a teacher in a month? How many times do you see a mechanic in a month? But how many times do you eat food in a month? So I think it's a, it's a main, uh, main um, activity as human beings in as much as we, most of us will not agree because we think you know, we are creating content or we are doing other things. But our main activity as, a, as human beings is to consume food. And uh, being that our population has become dominant um, you know, amongst other species, therefore our consumption clearly has a bearing on how resources are used, has a bearing on how you know, um, conservation happens, has a bearing also on generally all the issues that affect our environment around us. And, and, that, and that definitely global warming is part of that conversation. So I, I, I want to agree that definitely we need to look at uh, our food and farming systems as not only victims, but also as contributors. But at the same time, through that analysis, we need to see what are the opportunities, what are the things we can stop doing, and what are the things that we can start doing. It's very important to look at it that way because there are definitely things that we should stop doing as humans. Um, and there are also things that we can start doing as humans to try to accelerate, accelerate the process to bring back nature the way it's supposed to be valid we've experienced COVID-19 we've seen we've seen how detrimental it can be to many aspects yeah. how do you think COVID-19 comes into play into building the resilient food systems in this like in this era as much as we are trying to fight this how does it come into play as of now that we've experienced this um to start with when COVID started and particularly when the lockdown started right uh, borders were closing there are, there are things that so many other sectors of, of life were affected. Food systems, to me, was one of the significant areas where we could see the exposure and the vulnerability of that system. Um, and I did a whole uh, paper around urban, uh, urban food resilience. And this was because it showed us that many urban areas do not have a localized food system. And for me, the COVID and, and food systems was really like, a time for, for humans and for, for municipalities and government and, and residents and policymakers to think around how do we make urban areas a bit more resilient and independent in their food system? Because that was not there. And it showed very clearly that you get areas with high population, mm -hmm. rely on areas with very low population to feed them, mm -hmm. right? It also showed that some of the best quality food is reserved to save urban population, whereas they do not grow particularly anything in the urban populations, in the urban areas. And once you have a lockdown and you had borders closing, it became a challenge because then you couldn't, food couldn't, mm -hmm. I mean, goods yes. couldn't flow, yes. uh, literally. Mm -hmm. So that was a concern, which meant that for me, in terms of thinking around resilience, and this is why I think localizing food systems is one of our best shots in building resilient and also climate proof 
systems in the future. What that means is that when we plan in cities and we plan in areas with high population, we need to think around, like uh, uh, like Emmanuel said, people eat, mm -hmm. everyone eats. I mean, you mm -hmm. build a whole sort of design a whole city yeah. and not think where the food is going to come from and assume that, oh, we're going to import it from somewhere. We're going to bring it from wherever. Mm -hmm. That notion has really contributed significantly to the emission count of food systems. When we say that, I mean, like you said, I mean, 17% of them. Yes. That is not just always around the actual growing of the food. It's also the logistics involved, right? If you're going to freeze a product and move it from point A to point B, it's going to take whatever years. Mm -hmm. The transportation, the freezing, the electricity, the energy, all of that amounts to those emissions. And if you have localized food systems, that helps because A, there is proximity. And it's not just COVID, I mean, COVID, but we've seen other, other crises and other disasters where you are cut off from all your sort of geographical networks. So nothing comes in, nothing goes up. So having localized food systems health in the sense that you, you know that, okay, you have your primarily source of food within that geographical uh, uh, boundaries, and you can rely on that in case you are cut off from other, other communities and other, other places. So that is very important. And then the other part of it is that when people eat locally within the area where something is produced, of course, A, it reduces emissions, but also have proximity to the growth itself of food. Then thinking that it's just going to come from somewhere, so you don't think about it out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very simple. If you get your food from a supermarket from the shelf, you enter, and for you, the, the translation is that as much as you have money, you, are, you can get food and you should get food. And you treat the food how you want to treat it because you paid for it. You paid for it. And, and I mean, but you know, but again, this is not like a, a car. This is not a, a machine which you manufacture and you say, okay, now I paid for it. Now I do it. But even in that sense with cars and vehicles, I feel like people treat that even much more carefully, right? What's more expensive to take care of? Well, it's more expensive, right, on the material side of things. But if yes. you think about food and think about what you do to your own body, True. it is actually way more expensive than if you think of a car, right? I mean, whatever you ingest into your body becomes who you are. So for me, when you have urban centers and areas where people can actually see their food growing, that gives them that thinking, that proximity. They have their eyes on it. They have it in their mind, and they treat food from a different perspective than that thinking, which we are growing very significantly now in cities, that as long as I have money, I eat whatever I want. And I, if, I, if I don't feel like eating it, I throw it away and you cannot tell me yeah. to stop because I pay for it. <laughs> and that is really, it's a really stupid mentality, right? So, I mean, we need to find a way of changing the narrative. And I think the way of changing that is localizing food systems, people getting proximity to the food, the growing process, being part of it, seeing it, having a relationship in that sense, that they can feel like it took quite some time to get this food on my table. I'm not just gonna stash it away. And I feel like, I mean, if I look at Sub-Saharan Africa, we are not so far from that. It's only recently that, you know, I mean, if you look at the mega cities, Accra, yes. Lagos, yes. Nairobi, it's only recently that we just became supermarket people. Mm -hmm. yeah, if not, I mean, <laughs> look, if not, you still drive, go to, the, go to the village, visit your family, and you bring a lot of food from the village and you bring it to the city for yourself too. Very true. It's only recently that we got stuck with this, oh, go to the supermarket, I have money, I get whatever I want. So we should just quickly start moving back to, yeah. to our roots in the sense of how we perceive food, how we grow food and how we treat food. That's amazing, that's an amazing submission. Satamba, yeah. what should you take on this? No, I, I, I want to 98% um, agree with Joshua, but, but uh, actually, 
you know, we need to really um, rethink um, how our food systems are structured. And the question of what the impact or the effect of COVID has been on food systems, I would say that uh, the, 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 the COVID has not affected food systems as much as people want to say. Um, you know, COVID did not affect plants in as much as I saw some people in Tanzania, you know, testing papayas for COVID and, you know, there was all that drama and all that. But, you know, COVID did not affect our plants. It did not affect our, our farms. It did not um, significantly affect production. But what COVID did, it showed us exactly where the leakages are along our food system. It showed us exactly how much inequalities there are when it comes to accessing good quality food for all, for everyone. Um, here in Nairobi, I mean, the situation was not different. I mean, the guys who are running around and all that because of the lockdown, then you realize that everyone who was able to feed themselves, they were merely surviving because they were being paid just enough to feed themselves. So the moment you cut out that income for just a week, then this person that was perceived to be food secure becomes food insecure. So it is not COVID that has affected the food security of this person. Actually, this person had a fake sense of food security. That is, and I think that is what Joshua is talking about, trying to transition and move back closer to food, move back closer to farms, understand our production processes, get engaged, get involved. You know, one of the things that I used to observe a lot with this culture of people getting food from their village is that when you go and get bananas from your mom, when you are there, you will realize she doesn't have sugar or she doesn't have wheat flour or she doesn't have salt or she doesn't have salt. So those transactions are very important to share some of the income in the urban areas and also some of the privileges and resources that are in the rural areas. So that transaction is, is becoming um, almost impossible. And that is why you're seeing older people are left in the villages alone because there's no one to take care of them because no one goes there for food anymore. No one goes there to see the challenges that these people are going through. So that we have a disconnect between the urban uh, population and the rural population, and that is really uh, causing a big problem. So I think my, 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 my understanding is that, yes, in as much as COVID might have, you know, in quotes, affected food distribution or affected uh, access to food, but that is not for me the main thing. The main thing is that COVID just showed us that, you know what, guys, you are behaving as if you are okay, but you are actually not okay. You are thinking that everyone is safe, but not everyone is safe. Not everyone can take care of themselves. And that is the level of inequality we have, not only in terms of food, but in everything, in every other sense of our lives, that we have people, especially in urban areas, who are barely surviving, yet we have people who have resources to take them through months, through years. And that level of inequality definitely needs to be addressed. Um, at all at all levels, uh, so that uh, everyone has a chance, even in, 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 in situations like COVID-19 pandemic, everyone has a chance to really take care of themselves. So the, 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 the challenge we saw, uh, for me, has been there, is only that it has been hidden for a very long time. You know, it has been a taboo to talk about not having food in the house. Um, in, in, in our culture, you know, especially a man going out to borrow food, you know, it looks like, okay, you are weak. You have failed yourself and all that, or complaining that you don't have food looks like you, you don't have to, you know, you are not working hard enough or things like that. And that, that negative understanding of food insecurity, which is a complex problem, is not only a problem that affects you because you are lazy or affects you because you didn't perform in school or affects you because you haven't taken an opportunity to go and look for jobs. It affects you because it is there. It happens to you. So a lot of people, you see now, you know, even now when you start getting graduates being unemployed, 
and, and, and not having enough to eat, then they start to understand that these other guys is not because they are not smart. It's, 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 this is a situation we need to, everyone, we need to come out and address it. Also, the guys who are eating food don't know what they are eating. The safety of that food we are eating is not guaranteed. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like every one of us is suffering from something we do not understand. And our food system is on the verge of collapse. And Africa, I think, um, um, you know, when you're talking about going back and building back our connection with nature, building back our connection with food, Africa has a very big chance. That is the only place, that is the only race we can win against the rest of the world. When it comes to going back to nature, we can easily retract those steps. I don't think we have become 100% a supermarket uh, society, but we can easily retrace back. But it really needs a lot of awareness and a lot of information and a lot of knowledge and a lot of people to really take it upon themselves to think and act in a, the most sustainable ways when it comes to food. Indeed, we do need to retrace our steps. Does global warming affect the quality and quantity of food produced? So the first is quality. We are still staying on you, Imano. Yeah, so um, of course, um, you know, with the global warming, which is one of the phenomena we are, we are looking at when we're talking about climate change, there are two extremes. And in some cases, those two extremes are happening to farmers at the same time or in the same location, not at the same time. For example, I farm in a place called Soi. Soi is in uh, Eldoret in Kenya, uh, which is part of the Rift Valley. And uh, I also work a lot with the pastoralists, uh, you know, supporting other projects with other organizations in um, the arid and semi-arid area of Kenya. So my place where I farm would be a place that can be considered as, you know, they, in Kenya they call it food basket, which is a wrong assumption that because there's a lot of maize that comes from that area <laughs> that gets into the market, that everyone else now in that area has maize. I know neighbors who uh, have to be supported to eat. It's not because it's, a, it's, a, it's not a food basket. But essentially, this area, you know, will be considered as an area that receives optimal rainfall, you know, has the optimal altitude for production and all that. So what happens is that when it rains, it is it, like when it rains, it pours, you know, and when it shines, when the sun shines, it burns. So those two extremes are experienced, you know, my family is experiencing those two extremes. So the, the, the ability for me to produce, of course, is reduced because when it rains, I have a problem. When, this, when it is the time for the sun to come, then I also have a problem. So you have these two extreme weather events that as a result of climate changing and global warming that affect farmers and affect their ability to produce. It shouldn't be that we are scared that we can't produce, that we are scared that our farmers will not be able to produce after 10, year, 10 years from now. No, we need to start talking about getting knowledge out, getting innovations out, getting ideas out so that farmers can know how to cope. For example, in my farm, I've done water retention ditches. So the water retention ditches are helping me, first of all, to drain water when it rains so much, and at the same time, helps me to keep water, not only water, but also moisture in the soil, humidity in the air when it's hot. So these things, we need to start talking about them, and we need to start supporting farmers. Not all farmers can afford the labor to do that. Not all farmers can afford to use machinery to do that. People are using machinery and all that. But I use manual labor, but not all farmers are able to pay uh, to get support from uh, other people in the village to, to do work like that. So we need to start looking at how can we support farmers? How can we subsidize climate mitigation so that we can be able to get production uh, to continue even in the event of, because climate change is happening and we're not going to stop it by making noise and tweeting online and, and raising billboards. 
This is a phenomenon that will take time for us to reverse the effects. So we need to move with speed now, look at what is happening where and what is needed, what level of uh, technology is needed, uh, what level of innovation, rural innovation, local innovation is needed, and how can we support these farmers to access those innovations and to apply the needed interventions. Joshua, yeah, what's your take on this? Well, um, I think that, you know, uh, at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, I remember we had an adaptation, high-level adaptation meeting, and then the CEO of the Global Center on Adaptation said something, said that he was in Kenya recently, and he said, when it doesn't rain, people cry. <laughs> when it rains, people cry. <laughs> yeah. right? And that is, and that is, the, that is the situation, really. Yeah. That is the reality, right? You yeah. sort of, you have a, you're suffering from both droughts and floods at the, at the mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. uh, so significantly, that affects production, mm -hmm. right? I mean, whether we like it or not, it affects production. How do we adapt to that? Right? I, mean, I think that's the question, right? How do we adapt to that? Because I don't think that it's even worth looking into whether, how, to what extent does it affect uh, uh, food production because it affects it significantly. We've seen, and I'll give you an example. During 2019, uh, Cyclone died, right? Mozambique, uh, Mozambique. Cyclone hit exactly at a time when it was ready for harvest. Ooh. So we're not talking about the food loss itself. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the livelihood loss attached to that, the investment loss attached to that. Like everything, everything, right? So everything, like sort of your whole years of work, everything goes back to zero. So that, that is not something to even argue about. The question is, these extremes are going to keep happening, and they're going to get it even more intense, right? I mean, we saw last year, uh, Sudan had century-worst flood. I mean, sort of worst in many years we, we saw along the, I mean, Ethiopia had its own fair share of, uh, of, of flood, floods as well, along the Sahelian Strip. I mean, if it's not drought, it's dry spells, which farmers don't, don't necessarily know how to deal with that. So these are going to keep happening. They're going to keep getting a stream. And even some regions of, of, of our continent where some of these issues are not so prominent will start experiencing it. How do we prepare ourselves and farmers and food uh, systems to approach this, right? And I think there I agree completely. Innovation is one thing to look at. We really need to think around what new methods of farming, right? Or old methods of farming can be practiced in a way that can really protect and secure the livelihoods of farmers, right? Well, that is one. But what we need to look at significantly from my perspective is also, how do we actually maximize the use of what we already produce? Mm -hmm. Because I absolutely, I, I think, and I mean, I don't have um, the, the raw data to say that, okay, I mean, X quantity of, um, uh, of food uh, could, be, you know, could be saved for the next year or whatever. But significantly, we know from a global perspective yeah. that one third of food producer goes to waste, right? Yes. I mean, certainly yeah. there's a fair share of every region of the world wasting quite a, quite a quantity of that. And I think that if I think of resilience and adaptation, we need to look around, right? How do we maximize harvest? Mm -hmm. And in Ghana, I mean, there are so many, and I've sit in so many pitch decks uh, from uh, new enterprises and uh, new uh, companies. And a classic example is tomatoes. We you know clearly, and I've, I've heard this in many pages where people say that, oh yeah, I mean, majority of the tomatoes we produce in the in the in the season, in the tomato season, goes to waste because um, 
Of course, they are all sold as fresh tomatoes. And then the, the ones they make a mess out of it, the, the value also drops. So how do we make sure that in the in the in the big season when these produce are in and in abundance, mm -hmm. how do we maximize efficiency okay, yeah. and use yeah. such that you know in the dry season or when it's off season, or if there should be any uh, 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 um, potential uh, hazard that manifests and turns into a disaster, or if there's any risk, we still have food and farmers can still make money out of their hard work. And this goes back to the beginning of what I said that I don't think it's because we do not produce enough. I think we do produce enough, but how to get that food to the table of those who need it when they need it mm -hmm. is rather the concern to look at, yes. right? And there's so many different, and I've seen some models which I find very attractive. There's a model which I saw where a community, small rural community has a, pro, a small processing center mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily belong to someone, right? It's a community processing center. No one farmer has to bear the cost of the processing machine, the equipment of the cost, right? So it's, who is to bear this cost? So this, this, of course, this is where innovation comes in. I've right? been mm -hmm. looking at different financing models. Mm -hmm. So as an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur goes in, right? Gets a financing model that allows them to set this up. But instead of getting the farmers to pay an upfront cost, if you get a debt, Right, if you get a debt to do this, all right, you know you're going to pay that by money, but over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. In this sense, of course, you what you need to do is, of course, burden the local capacity on operating, operating this machine, burden the capacity in terms of maintenance and operations. But then, as a point, a farmer has their produce, they decide how much of that they want to sell as a fresh produce, how much they take to the processing center mm -hmm. for it to be processed into another product that comes to stay for, I don't know, a year, right? And how much do they want to keep themselves at home? If they want to eat, eat themselves. Mm -hmm. But currently, majority of our farmers are working on the basis of as, as soon as you harvest, everything must, must go. Because I can't keep them. Because you cannot keep them. You don't even have the space sometimes. Sure. Farmers don't sometimes have the space to keep them, right? Yeah. So could we adopt models like this where in every small farming community, I mean, whether it's oranges and apples and tomatoes or whatever, some get produced into juice, some get produced into dried um, dried fruits or dried vegetables, some are sold as fresh, you know, some are different options. And then block calculator to know that, okay, this could last for a year and that goes here, right? And for the farmer, you know that you still have wealth or you still have income beyond the farming season because you could still sell the dry food. You could still sell the one which is processed into juice. You could still sell during along the year outside of the, the, the season itself. And models like this, I find very important. There are also models around insurances, which are also very effective, which, I mean, it depends on what kind of insurance we're we looking at. Yeah. But principally, the, giving that assurance to the farmer that value remains the same with or without the, the weather dynamics, right? Okay. I mean, and that is important. And there could be insurance even protecting the price of a product, right? So that as a farmer, you know that, okay, I'm going to make this investment into a product. And then we, after the farming season, I could retain this price, whether it's a bumper period, whether it's a abundance period, or whether it's a, yeah. it's a low season period. Yeah. But I have a window period of six months to sell this product at a fixed rate of this price, right? And then again, here, we need innovative financing models. We need innovative community-based uh, 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 processing models. Because I feel like the process, no way when you think about it, the company thinks that they need to absorb all the cost of setting up a huge factory. Well, we don't have the money. And that's the reality. We don't. No, yes. seriously, we don't. And if one company wants to set up the next big pineapple processing, whatever, then you rely on the government because no one company can set this up so easily. 
So how do you make it in a way that there is community-based enterprise models, financing models that allow a cluster of association and pharma groups and uh, cooperatives, whatever, to all tap into a common resource, but then invest in the, in the, in the, in the infrastructure use, in the training, and the capacity, in the maintenance, say that there's longevity on the, on the equipment itself and can actually serve the purpose over a long period of time. How do we come up with new financing models which actually secure the protects farmers and ensure the wealth of farmers? Because from what I see, most of the financing models I see um, across the continent is rather to the benefit of the bankers oh, yes. and the financial institutions than <laughs> to the farmers. Yeah. Even though on first notice, it looks like, oh, this is here for the farmer. But if you really sit there and do the maths over a period of time, what you're offering, you realize that? Dude, I mean, come on. You're ripping these guys off everything they are making, right? So how do we come up with really putting human-centered approach of addressing these issues and not just think of it from the sort of traditional capitalistic approach of, yeah, it has to make X amount of money at this time, right? We need to look at it from a business sense, but at the same time, from a social sense, economic sense, but also the, the sort of the, 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 the sense of uh, sustainability and, and, and preserving nature's capital. So these are some of the approaches I see could work uh, in terms of delivering or producing food that can feed the world, reducing the impact on the environment, but most importantly, protecting the farmers. Because I so much hate it that we say that we all eat, we say that we all need food, and I don't know how many rich farmers that I can actually count. <laughs> there are rich middlemen yeah. who claim to be farmers, mm -hmm. but actual farmers on the ground, farming on everyday basis, mm -hmm. literally, I cannot count. I, They're very minimal. No, really. I mean, <laughs> so how do we really deliver services that is in the interest of really taking them out of poverty, building interest in farming? And here, I mean, of course, I mean, the, the innovators who said, ah, but farming is not just going to the farming. Farming is not just uh, those who are on the ground and digging the holes and whatever, right? But in the end, believe me, our best shot of feeding the world mm -hmm. still remains with soil. Yeah. It still remains with soil. You know what I mean? I like the idea of this whole vertical farming and that. Mm -hmm. All of that is great and amazing. We need to explore that for the future. But yeah. as it stands today, our chance of feeding the world really remains with soil. Our chance of feeding the world in a nature positive way remains with soil. Our chance of feeding the world in the most ethical way remains with soils. So we really need to think around how do we make you know, all, our, all our folks who have spent years selling the soil, working on the ground. If we do not design interventions that really prioritize their needs and their well-being and their health and their safety and their, and their development, we, still, we are still missing in the point. Okay. Imano, are you still with us? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, great. Very so, interesting, very interesting, um, you know, um, discussion that I think, um, I think, you know, just to emphasize that this, this thing of, you know, it has to make money. Um, you know, I always ask myself, it has to make money to who? Has to make money to who? <laughs> At the end of the day, I think, some of these questions, you know, we are talking about survival for people. We are talking about livelihoods. We are talking about food. Yeah, we are talking about basic needs for people in rural areas. And, and I think when everyone is asking, you know, if we put in a billion shillings, how much will we get out of it? I think that is never should, should never be part of the questions. Um, there's so much damage that has been caused um, and we need to, first of all, pay for that damage. And then we can start talking about balancing the equations later on. But I think, I think farmers and uh, not only farmers, but also, you know, pastoralists, fisher folks, Everyone engaged in food production needs to be, first of all, compensated for the, for the effects 
that they are feeling, um, which are not entirely 100% a result of their own doing. Okay, so Emmanuel, Joshua touched on the number of methods that we can adopt to keep food production at par with the demand, even in this climate, right? Even in this climate that we have a, a very fast-paced climate change process is given a number of methods. From you, concerning sustainability, what methods do you think farmers can adapt to remain globally competitive? Yeah, I think I think um, I think I've I've also I've also hinted on some yes, that I just to add on overall. I think it's not about what farmers should do or what farmers can do. It's about what we can do as humans. I think we need to change that completely. That I think at the end of the day, you know, um, and, and and I think as as Joshua said, you know, these all fancy ideas of you know vertical gardening and um, hydroponics. Mm -hmm. And there are people are talking about GMOs and these are just you know, nice okay, ideas that people can talk about. But at the end of the day, we are better off farming, mimicking nature or farming towards nature-based, nature um, I mean, using nature-based solutions, basically farming with nature rather than against it um, in addressing the problems that we have than doing anything else. I think it's important to go back to the roots, um, as we'd say. And, and, and when it comes to farming and, and what is needed basically to, um, you know, to, to ensure that we have a future um, as humans, because if we don't have a future of farming, then we don't have future humans. So it's about us, all of us. I think the most important thing, first of all, we need to maintain uh, use practices that maintain uh, biodiversity. Um, at all levels, we need to do that. I think this idea of superior seeds and everyone is buying the same seeds and everyone is, you know, killing the same weeds and uh, growing the same crops. You know, we need to maintain biodiversity. That is our, that is that is the, that is the backup plan we have. I mean, if we don't have that, I mean, we have no songs to play in future. And that it's like it's like it's like throwing away old songs because you have a new song that is hitting. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, we really need to. Uh, to, to really um, maintain that. And then the other thing is we need to take care of our soil. And you cannot take care of soil if you are not eating from that soil. So the best way to take care of the environment, the best way to take care of soil, the best way to take care of tree cover, the best way to take care of vegetation cover, because I believe it's not only about tree cover. Also grass has an impact in terms of carbon sequestration, in terms of uh, cooling down the planet. So when we are talking about all these activities, I think the most important thing is to see how this can be happening within the farming ecosystem. So this climate, uh, all climate interventions and all that need to happen within the, the biggest surface through which we are interacting with nature or through which we are interacting with the globe or, the, or, the, or with, the, uh, with the planet Earth, not the globe, but the planet Earth itself. And, and that is through farming, that is through digging, that is through planting, that is through harvesting, that is through weeding, weed management, pest management, and all that. So all those things we need to start integrating, um, you know, what you will look at. First of all, as mitigation measures, but secondly, we need to bring back, you know, the natural uh, state of things. Um, so all these interventions really have to be taken up by everyone. And the first people to talk about this should be consumers, because farmers, um, from where I sit, farmers are entirely, um, you know, not entirely, but mostly hope, hopeless about these situations. You know, when you talk about interventions that farmers can use, some of these farmers do not even have capital. They have been struggling with climate. They have struggled with floods. They lose their crops during floods. They lose their crops during droughts and all that. And you want them to lead the process to build back a better world. I think <laughs> all of us need to go back and support that process. So that's why I'm saying 
um, I've stopped speaking to farmers about what they should do. And I speak to everyone about what they should do. Because I believe everyone should do something. Even if you are living in the city, yes, indeed. you can do something. You can fund, you can support initiatives that support farmers to be able to restore their lands. You can support initiatives that support pastoralists to be able to re, uh, regreen uh, yeah, or, or receive their, their, their areas where the land degradation has happened. Um, so all of us have something that we can do in the spaces that we have. And it's not just about tweeting and making videos and looking angry about you know, all this climate change and looking desperate. It's also about taking those small, small steps. Even in your diet, even in, 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 in how you pay farmers, we need to pay farmers better so that they can implement these interventions we are talking about. Otherwise, they can never implement them if we are paying them the least uh, for the work that they're doing. So it's important that uh, I think it's a holistic approach to it um, that everyone needs to be involved. That's great to know. So staying on means and finding ways to adapt and getting better. Do you think the technological innovations that keeps bringing in day in, day out, do you think that gives farmers some sort of hope against this global one? Well, if you're asking me if um, spraying the farm uh, with drones. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. Um, <laughs> will impress my father in the village? Maybe, right? But it doesn't do much from his perspective, right? If you ask him, if spraying a farm with drones um, for the new graduate uh, who is thinking of uh, doing some urban farm, yeah, that sounds very impressive and very attractive, right? So I mean, so there are different target groups here. Um, and for me, I think, all those technological springs uh, springing up here and there, you know, promising X, Y, Z, uh, giving so much hope to the future and all of that. We need that. I mean, we, we can never pause on research in, in, in the state we are, right? I mean, the disasters are gonna come. You now it's gonna get intense and intensified. So we need to get ready. We need yeah. to prepare. We need to, we need to deploy all it's different sort natural, of resources right? and, and, mm-hmm. and, and research um, to prepare ourselves for that. But, it depends on how much we spend on that versus how much we actually invest in what we know works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We know that the old man and the old woman in the village walk three kilometers to farm, right? And they've been doing this for the past many years. Sadly. And guaranteed, they get X quantity of harvest at the end of the month, at the end of the season, right? This we know works. So how do we improve that? versus how much we spend on thinking that we could manufacture something out of, out of nowhere, right? So while I, while I really support research going on and trying different methods um, of producing food and, and all of that in a very technological advanced way, I think that we need to focus on what really works and how to maximize efficiency on what works. You know, I always use um, the health sector as an example. There were pilot projects around delivering, um, uh, delivering, uh, um, um, I think drugs and blood and other things with drones and all of that. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, this is really fantastic because there are some areas look it's difficult to get there by, mm-hmm. by road and, yeah. and all of yeah. that, right? But at the same time, what I said was, but definitely, definitely, mm-hmm. we know yeah. that when you have a good road and you have an ambulance, right, mm-hmm. and you ease traffic. Mm-hmm. That works. We know this. Yes. Right. So for me, it's, it's it seems to me that we know what works, but we we are so caught up in the idea of let's jump, let's let's jump from 
let's leapfrog. That's the word, right? Leapfrogging. So we're gonna we're gonna to leapfrog to avoid fixing the conventional news. Get that. So let's leapfrog and get to something that no one has ever done before. Well, then the, the, here we are mm-hmm. with such a difficult addressing system still in Ghana, for instance. True. Right. I mean, so sometimes I feel like we need to explore different uh, alternatives and technological advancements towards a very good vision. But while we try that, we need to also maximize what works. We need to invest in what works and make that more robust while we find different methods. But we do not put all our eggs in the basket of something that might work and that looks like it could work and neglect what we certainly know works. And again, let's think about it. All these all these um, investments coming in, right? They're coming in from somewhere, right? And sometimes I ask myself, how much of that, those leapfrogging has happened there versus how much that is going to happen here? And if you don't have your basics right, no matter how much you want to leapfrog, I mean, we always use the, 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 the technology and some yeah. mobile phones yeah, definitely going to sync. As, as an example, because mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Africa, moon and, and mobile money or whatever. Yeah, because there was a basis. There was a basis that yeah, people, people are going to use phones. It wasn't a basis that people didn't want to use phone and all of a sudden they moved from zero to the next iPhone, latest iPhone or whatever, right? It was a basis that people are going to use phones. And people are going to buy the cheapest phone, whatever that is on the market. And yeah, I'm not talking about our fancy uh, uh, middle class, upper class people. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the majority mm-hmm. of the informal sector, of course, which really fuels the economy in Africa. Mm-hmm. And most of the majority of the informal sector is buying what they can afford, right? And because there is a gap that they cannot, of course, get a bank account because there's no addressing system and they cannot get a bank account because, I mean, the money is too volatile to walk to a bank and put that small amount and the next day go there to try and get that amount back. It doesn't work. So then if you have a solution around that, of course, in this context, leapfrogging works. But in the case where the basics are not there, right? How many of our, the food baskets of, of, of every country within Sub-Saharan Africa, how many of the people that actually, right, are equipped enough to practically, right, work with some of the tools that have been developed? Right. And here we can argue that, oh, yeah, then we're going to get all the graduates uh, to come and fix it. But again, it also shows us that then again, the actual target group never gets the benefit. Right. And we're going to keep them crippled wherever they are and raise a new cluster of middlemen and consultancies and whatever, mm-hmm. which will just keep sucking the money away. Creating another issue. So, yes, good. Let's do the research. Let's invest there. But let's do more of that investment in what we know works. Yeah. That's great. Hello, Emmanuel. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I had to meet you because I was getting this feedback because of the internet. What's your take on that? Your take on if new technologies are serving as as the blooming light at the end of the tunnel for for farmers when it comes to global warming looming as a threat for them? Yeah, so I think... uh, uh, picking up from uh, where Joshua left, I think, yes, definitely use of technology is one of the ways to address the issues, but it's not the only way. And, and um, I don't have a problem with technology, but I know technology can fail. Okay? Um, just the same way you have, if you have your iron box, um, you know, today it can iron your shirt very well, tomorrow it can burn the same shirt. Technologies fail, and that is how technology, technologies are prone to failure. 
So but when you are looking at the example you gave, that's based off your usage and how you apply it, no? No, uh, it doesn't matter. I think if you have been using Ironbox for quite some time, I think you must have banned uh, one or two shots. So it is obvious yeah, that true. one day. I, I didn't that's... need to be paying for Ironbox, but hey. <laughs> don't yeah, so, so, <laughs> so, so that's why I'm saying, I think I don't have a problem with technology. But the problem that is there is that we have become a generation where we are using a few brains on the planet and we think that we are very progressive. Okay. And let me explain this. You know, we are talking about food systems and talking about climate change and talking about natural environment and how they interact. And, and, and these are very, very extremely fragile systems where you cannot just wake up in the morning and replace A with B or replace X with Y or replace Z with, 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 with X. I think there should be a lot of consideration to try first of all to maintain um, the similarities within our farming ecosystems and nature, first of all. I don't think, for example, that one day all of us will be farming in greenhouses. I don't think, I don't ever think that will happen. First of all, the green, the materials used to build greenhouses are expensive and not everyone can afford them. Uh, some of us are not growing crops that can be considered as high value and we love the crops we are doing. I love my bananas, I love my sugarcane. I will not grow them in greenhouses. So if someone comes today and says that the only solution to grow food is building greenhouses and installing drip irrigation systems, then they'll be lying because I want to try mulching, okay? I want to try farrow irrigation. I don't have to use drip irrigation system. I don't have to buy plastic uh, irrigation uh, tubes from a company that is selling them for profit. If they're not selling them to help me, they are selling them to earn a living. In as much as yes, if someone is in a situation where they have to use this drip irrigation system, for example, um, you know, to address the issue of, you know, uh, water efficiency, water use efficiency and all that. Um, I don't think it's 100% a requirement for me if I want to store water on my farm that I need to buy this big plastic tank uh, and, 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 and bring it on the farm. I don't think that should be a requirement. I can dig a small dam and direct my water there and it can still serve the purpose. You get what I mean? that there are methods that can be used that are low cost, that use locally available resources, that doesn't require heavy capital investments that we can start building on before we go to this technology thing. I'll use an example of GMO. Um, I, I, I'm not from the school of thought that thinks that GMO is going to cause cancer and all that. I don't subscribe to that. Um, I believe there's no evidence for that. But I'm asking myself, who needs GMOs, you know? And, and if you're getting into countries, countries where GMOs have been allowed, for example, now here in Kenya, we have BT cotton that has just been allowed. Now people are growing BT cotton. The government is using taxpayer money, my taxpayer money, to subsidize GMO cotton seeds. Is that my priority? Really? And when they subsidize, who are they paying? They're paying the company that developed that technology. GMO is not a science. They call it a science, but GMO is a technology in itself. And just as I've given you the example of the iron box, one day, those GMO seeds will not germinate because it's a technology, it's not something that is natural. And we replace <laughs> science, which I understand to be something that we know over many years to be consistent. Like I know, I'll get a seed from a mango tree, or from a mango fruit, sorry, and if I put it in soil and it has moisture, and it will germinate. I know that. So when we start replacing the science that we know with technologies, that we know very little about, that is where the problem comes in. 
and 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 um, there's really a lot of opportunity even in agroecological farming systems uh, or what they call organic farming systems i don't like to label that i just talk about good sustainable farming systems but even in those systems there's a lot of opportunity to integrate technology we're talking about pumping uh, using solar powered pumps using all these sustainable technologies and all that there's room for that we are talking about even in conservation tillage we are talking about uh, you know using equipments that can help us to achieve conservation tillage uh, or conservation agriculture on a large scale yes all and good but when only when the, the what we know has been exhausted so i think yes um, technology has a role to play but i think we need to caution that we cannot throw everything we have in in, in Swahili, we have a saying that says usitene bigiji what it means, bigiji is a chewing gum. So you know when you have your chewing gum in town and you are enjoying chewing your gum and then you meet someone, you meet Joshua and he says, you, I have some groundnuts here, can you try them? Then you throw the chewing gum and you start taking the groundnuts. How long will the groundnuts take you? How many streets will you walk chewing that, uh, you know, enjoying the groundnuts? And you have thrown away something that would have taken you longer. So that is, the, that is the thinking that we need to adapt when we are looking at food systems. We need to be very cautious about throwing away what we have uh, in favor of anything that comes and looks new, anything that comes and has a promise of working, because some of those promises uh, sometimes are exaggerated. For example, the claims that we can only farm with GMOs, that is exaggerated. Claims that we cannot farm without drip irrigation system because people have invested money, that is exaggerated. Uh, claims that we can only farm with the seeds that we buy from the shop is extremely exaggerated. I can keep my own seeds and I can, I can use them to farm. So we need to really appreciate that, that the technology does not have to replace what we already have, all the systems that are in place. I think that is that is that will be my comment on that. Thank you so much for your salvation, Emmanuel. That was an amazing one. So uh, this brings us to the end of the episode. It's been an amazing submission from you both. Yeah. The different perspectives on both on almost every 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 talking point that we brought up. And it's been great having you, have having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you for that, uh, those uh, nice uh, discussions. I also enjoyed listening to, to Joshua. I think we should. Yeah, you know, same here, same here. Really nice uh, connection. And uh, yeah, I will, I will try to touch base with you um, uh, separately to, to hear more about your work in Kenya and uh, yeah, possibly uh, understand how, how we could even work together. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you. Okay, great. So do all to subscribe and follow our Spotify and our Google Podcasts, and then soon to our Apple Podcasts as well. So my name is Randy, and this has been the Future Farm Pod.